Hello, it's Wednesday, July the 26th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to America's 45th president. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. We're doing this podcast on a day when a very divided Washington struggles to do its business and a divided American people. Well, they're maybe not as divided as you've been led to believe. That's what you learn if you read the writings of Morris Fiorina. He's a Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and the Wendt Family Professor of Political Science at Stanford University. He's the author of a series of brilliant essays that you'll find on the Hoover Institution's website devoted to the 2016 election. Mo, thanks for coming in the studio today. You're very welcome, Bill. Glad to be here. About the essays, tell me what inspired you to do this, and let's talk a bit about how, as a political scientist, you approach dissecting the 2016 election. Okay. Um, I have been writing about polarization or lack of in American politics since a little before the 2004 election. And it resulted first in a little book called Culture War, The Myth of a Polarized America. Mm -hmm. uh, that morphed into a, uh, a broader scientific book, more basically more political science book for my, my colleagues in 2009 um, called Disconnect, uh, The Breakdown of Representation in American Politics. And it's now uh, coming into another book. These essays will be collected and published by Hoover Press uh, that's going to appear, I believe, in early November. And it's, it's a project that I originally thought of as just one off, that I, I thought the media were simply portraying the situation in America in an inaccurate way. And it just won't die. It just keeps growing and growing. And I'm probably it's the case that this is not the end of it still. And what my goal has been is simply to try to explain what the situation in the United States looks like using data. Uh, we have very good databases in the academia, also access to places like Gallup and Roper. And to try to sort of get beyond um, people's impressions and talking to what they, what they believe talking to elites and get down to the level of the ordinary voter and describe how they feel and what they're, uh, what they're seeing out there. All right, so uh, how many essays so far? There are 12, and that's it. Uh, the 12th one was turned in <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, and uh, that's the concluding essay, which you can't write a concluding essay on, on this situation. Right. Uh, anybody tries to write a concluding essay after Trump's first six months in office is uh, engaged in a fool's errand, I think. Uh, but it was sort of saying, talk a little bit about what might happen in 2018, uh, talk a little bit about uh, just um, the United States versus the rest of the world. Uh, there are some commonalities, obviously, in what's happening. And uh, basically leaving it open for probably the next book. Okay, so the most recent essay, and you can find this again on the Hoover website, which is www.hoover.org, for those of you who want to download this, and I've already got a link on my Twitter feed to this. Uh, but the most recent essay is called The 2016 Presidential Election, Identities, Class, and Culture, and I believe this is number 11 in the series, Mo? Yes. All right. So you threw some interesting stats in this. Let's just quickly bounce through them. Hillary comes within 100,000 votes of Barack Obama in 2012. Turnout in 2016 is about 60 percent versus about 58 and a half. Excuse me, about 60 percent in 2012, 58 percent in 2016. But Donald Trump receives two million votes more than Mitt Romney, and and this is the key to the election. He does better across the North Central of the United States. That gives him the states he needs to win the Electoral College. But what you're writing about, which struck me as interesting, is you start talking into some of the assumptions that went into this election which did not pan out. For example, women. There was going to be a terrible meltdown among women for Donald Trump, and that didn't occur. You talked about the meltdown with Hispanics. Well, exit polls vary, but again, the, it didn't occur. And then you talked about the educated. 
and there were some mistaken assumptions about the educated. That's what I'd like you to get into in particular. There is a presumption that Donald Trump voters are what? Predominantly white and predominantly less educated. And you found a little interesting nugget when it came to people with postgraduate degrees. Yes, I did. It turns out, as you well know, in every election, some group is picked on as key to the election. We've had the, the NASCAR dads, the soccer moms, right. the security moms going back. This one, it was the working class male. Uh, in some cases, even the rural working class male, although there really aren't that many <laughs> out there anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, and what, what we found in this one was that was an exaggeration, that Trump's uh, support certainly was concentrated uh, in the lower educational levels, but it was more widespread than people realized. They, they typically made a divide saying college educated, non-college educated. If you break it down, you find that a majority of whites who had college degrees, four-year college degrees, voted for Trump, including a majority of women. Mm -hmm. It's only when you get to the, uh, what we sometimes refer to as the overeducated uh, segment of the population, professors, PhDs, and it really, I mean, it realistically, lots of people with master's degrees, teachers, various kinds of advanced certification. That's where you found the real support for Hillary on the women's side. Uh, even among the men's side, Trump came close to breaking even among white men with postgraduate degrees. Now, this breaks with the assumption of the election, it breaks with conventional wisdom, so political scientists have a choice. They can talk about this and point this out, or it can get swept under the rug. Is this being talked about, or has this been swept aside? I don't think it's been talked about much, because I don't think it's been, uh, we we've just really have gotten access to the big databases, that for a while, all we had was the exit polls, and the uh, various kinds of media polls, and they typically just divided it, as I said, college, non-college. And so it wasn't until I got ex uh, access to um, our fellow Hoover fellow, Doug Rivers, who was the chief scientist for YouGov, that right. when I got a hold of his panel study, broke it down by four categories, less than high school, uh, college, uh, less than college, college, and postgraduate. So I was able to see this really interesting uh, a finding that uh, Trump's support went much farther up the educational ladder than would have been led to believe from the exit polls. And I don't think anybody tried to hide that. I think they were just trying to make a real quick story. And it sort of fit the idea that sort of the presumption of Trump's voters were all uh, sort of yahoos, ignorant yahoos, and it sort of fit the elite's views. And in fact, uh, Trump got a whole lot of people who have college degrees out there. And I, I think the way to think of it is there, there are a lot more people who took engineering and agricultural degrees at Mississippi State and Iowa uh, than took humanities degrees at Stanford or Harvard. And uh, the, the, edu the college-educated class is much different from what we might think of as around here. Let's talk a bit about the cultural divide in this election, and not the cultural divide mo of the voters, but the cultural divide of the people who are trying to assess what's going on in the election. Let me read back this quote from your article. <clears throat> you wrote, and I quote, The priorities of the political class and normal voters differ considerably. Surveys show that issues of race, gender, and sexual orientation are more important for the former than the latter, especially among educated, affluent liberal activists who are quick to see racism and sexism at work, where less politically involved people see more innocent explanations. Here's the key sentence. Mainstream journalists and media commentators are part of the political class and so tend to share these tendencies. Now, at the risk of people who live in a glass house shouldn't throw rocks because you and I are on the payroll of a very exclusive <laughs> university. <laughs> Let's talk a bit about this divide between voters and the people who are assessing what's going on in the election. Yeah, I think it's one of the really interesting uh, divides, and it's especially a problem in the Democratic Party, I think, that um, there, there are 
Well, let's talk about the Democrats. I think it's where it's most evident. Uh, the party is split now between what we used to call limousine liberals. I think the term, the contemporary term is more gentry liberals, uh, educated professionals, the kind of people who did vote for Hillary Clinton, uh, who are primarily concerned with lifestyle issues. Uh, they're concerned with the environment. They're concerned with climate change, uh, social issues like abortion, gay marriage, transgender, et cetera. And then people more concerned with traditional democratic issues like jobs and housing and medical right. care and pensions and your children's education, et cetera. And I think that the problem the Democrats uh, run into is, uh, and and this extends to the, the media, uh, the people who, who do uh, share these values with them, is the, they, pri they prioritize the, the lifestyle issues. It, it's hard for the Democrats to come across as really caring for the old line Democrats when sort of all the energy, the activism uh, in the campaigns uh, comes much more from, I think, these, these new style uh, lifestyle groups. And I, I think it's generally true, even in the, um, you know, even on the right, that the fact is if you're a very comfortable upper middle class person, highly educated, you, you know, you live in a nice neighborhood, you don't worry about crime, you don't worry about your neighbors doing drugs, your kids go to good schools, um, you have a different set of concerns out there. So and essentially, essentially you can spend the time to worry about uh, social issues and climate change, et cetera. But if you're worried about where your next meal is coming from, if you're worried about your job going away next week, if you're worried about whether your kids are going to be, uh, you know, get through school okay, um, those are issues that are simply not as important. And I think that's one of the interesting divides in politics today, and especially for the Democrats. How can they sort of bring together these two, uh, these two sets of people with different priorities? Today may be a good example of that. The news out of Washington, other than what the Senate is trying to do on Obamacare, is Trump's announcement about policy transgenders in the military. And mm -hmm. so you've seen a swift and furious reaction where, well, not just in the media coverage, you've seen furious tweeting from people in Hollywood, mm -hmm. uh, Tim Cook from Apple has uh, tweeted some angry sentiments about this and Democratic lawmakers. So, Moses, the kind of example of the cultural divide. It, we it's saw. a good example because probably 95% of the American public could not care less right. about this issue. And yet this is agitating the, the political class to a great extent. I think that's one of the things that frustrates people is they see a politics that's built around issues that don't simply concern the vast bulk of the public, things that are way down. Gallup does these things are the most important issues in your voting. And it's always shocking that th things like abortion and gay marriage and guns come in 18, 19, and 20 on these lists. And yet those are often the things that motivate the people who work in campaigns and who are, who are the political, uh, the public face of politics in America. In your article, in your essay, Mo, uh, the acronym RAE, mm -hmm. what is RAE? Okay, this is a term, uh, it refers to the rising American electorate. It's all also called the Coalition of the Ascendant. It's also called, quite simply, the Obama Coalition. Right. And this was John Judas and Rui Teixeira. They proposed it back uh, pretty much in the early 2000s. And it's the notion that demographic change in this country is working inexorably to, in, to the Democrats' advantage. And the notion is that uh, immigrants, especially Latino immigrants, uh, single women, uh, young professionals, that these are all people who are democratic and they're growing stronger. They're growing as a larger as portions of the electorate. And so basically, the Republicans face a bleak future unless they can figure out a way to appeal to these new segments. Mm -hmm. And there have always been questions you can raise about it. Um, 
you know, at one time, Catholics were overwhelmingly democratic, and as they moved up through the socioeconomic ladder, they became less so. And so it's not by any means the case that Latinos are inevitably going to be marrying, or inevitably going to be voting democratic, although Trump is obviously not doing anything to, <laughs> to increase Republican support among Latinos. Uh, and and that's, so that's one thing, is you can't assume that there will always be um, these people continue voting at the same rates for Democrats. A second thing was simply that um, the presumption was whites wouldn't change their behavior. Now, if you're a middle-class married white couple, um, you might wonder to yourself, what's my role in this new Democratic majority uh, in the future? Am I just here to pay the taxes for these ascendant groups, or do I have a role in this as well? And I think we did see a backlash in this election in precisely that way, that the Democrats had not been talking, especially about the kind of people who defected to Trump in this election, and so we might have seen that. But the other, the, the interesting thing I, I found when I started writing the essays was that the, uh, the factual basis underlying the rising American electorate may be false. That it turns out, or uh, the Census Bureau projects that the country would become majority non-white, or majority, um, uh, yeah, I guess that's the way to phrase it, by 2045, I believe it is. And, but they have a classification which is if you are not, if you don't have all Anglo grandparents, you're minority. And it just continues going on like that. Now, as one of my colleagues in political science, who's the expert on sort of um, mixed marriages, and not, no longer the way we were growing up, Catholic Protestant, but now we're talking about ethnically mixed, right. racially mixed, uh, these are growing at a very fast rate. And it's not at all clear that somebody with one Latina grandmother and three other Anglo grandparents is going to be a minority or consider themselves a Latino in 30 years. And so um, so the Democrats, I, I think, would do much better to focus on a winning platform uh, and policies that appeal to uh, a majority of the American public than to sit back and think that demography is going to uh, inevitably carry them to victory. Right. Uh, and they have actually started talking platform. We'll get to mm -hmm. that in a moment. But let's close out on the RAE. James Carville writes a book not long after Barack Obama wins the 2008 election. He talks about a Democratic majority for the next generation, and this is what consultants do. Carl Rover, Carl Rover wrote a similar book, I think, after George Bush's election about a Republican century and so forth. And these tend up being terrible prognostications. But what we have seen about the RAEMO is that it worked wonderfully for Barack Obama in 2008. They did not come out to vote in 2010, and Democrats suffered mildly in congressional gubernatorial elections. Mm -hmm. They reassembled in sufficient numbers for Barack Obama, not as big as 2008, but enough to get him reelected in 2012. And then they disappeared again in 2014, and Democrats again lost in congressional and gubernatorial elections. And in 2016, while Hillary's numbers came close to what Barack Obama got in 2012, it was not good enough. So the question to you is, why does it work for Barack Obama, but why is it not transferable? <laughs> okay. Well, I think Obama was clearly a historically unique figure. And he also, uh, if you recall the way he ran the first time especially, he ran as somebody who was going to transcend a lot of the things that have been dividing us for the last several decades. Uh, it didn't work out that way, but uh, I, I think it was a really a special case. And uh, I think Americans were happy that they had a chance to vote for a minority candidate, that they could do so with, with enthusiasm. And uh, even still in 2012, some of that carried over. I think Obama was personally much more popular than his policies and his performance. Um, and so, uh, so I think in some ways he was a unique figure, and clearly as a, as a symbolic figure, uh, it was very important to minorities and, and helped mobilize them. And uh, not to say that uh, 
I mean, in a sense, Hillary would be one of the least likely white candidates to to, to bring on minorities. In a sense, I mean, I'm, I'm just well, I'm just saying she's not a um, she's not an inspiring figure. I mean, we have lots of data on how how the candidates are perceived, and Hillary is just not an inspiring figure. Uh, and so you could you could you could imagine some white candidates also are bringing bringing in more minority uh, more enthusiasm. I mean, I really think when all is said and done, they're going to conclude that. Uh, there's been there was actually very little surge in white turnout, and and uh, and whites didn't vote for Trump in any margins greater than Romney. They're going to find the bigger thing was simply the failure of African Americans and other minorities in certain communities, critical communities, to turn out. Uh, and I think that was a, a so function. You're talking, you're talking Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yes, exactly. Michigan, yeah, right exactly. She needed to run up bigger majorities in some of those areas in order to carry the states, and they didn't. You know, I think one quality that Obama possessed, which maybe gets overlooked, it was that he, even though he had a rather elite lifestyle himself, he's a Columbia undergrad, mm -hmm. Harvard law grad, and he's had a pretty blessed life and yeah. after college, uh, he doesn't come across necessarily as elitist. He's very relatable to voters, whereas I think this is something that Hillary suffered from, which is the perception of being elite detached. I remember when she left um, uh, office and she talked about not being, you know, having driven a car in something like 20 years. <laughs> just if I were working on her campaign, I just would have died at that point thinking, my goodness, what a very bad image. But in the 2016 election, we did see this, the rise of the working class and this revenge, if you will, this backlash against anti-elitism. But in your essay, you say anti-elitism is not necessarily anything new in American politics. Right. It, uh, it's something that comes, surges back and forth. Uh, clearly, we had a major populist moment in the late 19th century, which in one of the essays, I, I draw a lot of parallels between that time and this time. And then there's also, this is going on around the world, mm -hmm. as we've seen, that basically the, the experts, the establishment, the political class has lost confidence. In large part, I think, uh, justifiably so. They've simply failed to deliver um, in the last two decades. In, in the United States, we're looking at two wars that have gone on for for a long time, we're looking at poor economic performance, or at least economic performance that's worse than people were accustomed to. And you have the same sort of thing around the world, especially on the economy. And then you have immigration, a much bigger issue in Europe as well. Uh, so I think there's, there's basically, uh, some people in Europe are even starting to talk in this way that it's no longer left-right, it's the people against the experts, the people against the establishment. Right. And all around, I think there's been a loss of faith, a loss of trust, a loss of confidence in the right. establishments. But the two people who thrived in this election were Donald Trump, who, even though there's an elitist, it's Donald Trump, but he banged on the political establishment. And then the other is Bernie Sanders, who mm -hmm. banged on not just the political establishment, but also the financial establishment, the corporate establishment. And they were, if you're looking at surprise candidates in 2016, they were the two biggest surprises. I think that's right. This was the, the populist moment was out there, and Hillary Clinton was probably one of the least likely candidates to take advantage of that moment. And in fact, she went against it. I mean, you were talking about tearing your hair out if you're the cam her campaign manager. Well, when she made that deplorables remark, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, most political science research shows that these sort of campaign events don't matter much. But if there was ever something that was going to matter, I think that remark probably really, uh, really cut deep. Exactly. If we're talking about anti-elitism, is this a dust storm that George Wallace kicked up 50 years ago and is not really settled? I, I, I made. I went back and looked at some of George Wallace's rhetoric and. <laughs> It was surprising how he foreshadowed. He's very applicable uh, to yes, today. Yes, yes, very much so. And I think that's right. I think basically this begins uh, after a, a long, in, in the 1890s in the United States, it, it, the establishment was economic. It was banks, trusts, et cetera. 
Whereas I think this notion of the establishment also is cultural. It's the, it's the media, it's the, uh, the overeducated pro professors in the universities, um, the professional class, that's new and it has to do with the rise of that class. We didn't have that kind of huge professional class right. at the turn of the century. And I think this class in some respects, some ways, as I talked about in the essay, uh, has a certain amount of condescension uh, for a certain amount of contempt is probably too strong a word for ordinary people, but the idea is you drink craft beer and you drink Chardonnay and you go to Whole Foods. And you, there's a sense in which there's all, well, David Brooks actually talks about this a little bit too. Uh, there's a sense in which your lifestyle choices differentiate you from people who are less fortunate socioeconomically. And I think that sort of has begun to grate uh, out there. I think people are sensing it. Uh, and, and it's funny, I think a lot of people we associate with are oblivious to it. <laughs> they would deny it, but I think it's there. Uh, I come from the other side of the tracks, and I can sense it. I can, I can feel it. Right. If you remember what scared the political class about George Wallace, he was a product of the South, governor of Alabama, but he had followings in states like Michigan. Yes. Right, where mm -hmm. he just appealed to the blue-collar worker. Mm -hmm. So this week the Democratic Party has been busy. They had an event on Monday where they rolled out a new idea, a new vision for the Democratic Party. Uh, they called it the better deal. Not the new deal, the fair, squeal, the fair deal, the square deal, but the new deal. Uh, Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, wrote a column in the New York Times about this. Mom, I'm going to read you a poll quote from this, and why don't you explain to me what Chuck Schumer is thinking here. <clears throat> Senator wrote, quote, Americans are clamoring for bold changes to our politics and our economy. They feel rightfully that both systems are rigged against them, and they, and they made it clear in last year's election. American families deserve a better deal so that this country works for everyone again, not just the elites and special interests. Today, Democrats will start presenting that better deal to the American people. Okay, uh, two points. Um, first, I think the things he said will poll well. Uh, I, don't, I don't have any question they already did the polling and they know they poll well. Uh, but the fact is that um, for years now, this is not anything new, the American public has favored certain kinds of policies in the abstract but declined to favor government action on them because they don't right. believe the government can carry it out. They don't believe the government is competent enough and effective enough to actually do it. Mm -hmm. So if you ask Americans a general question, do you think the income distribution should be more equal? They say, oh, yes. Do you favor government action to do it? They say, no. <laughs> they just don't think it would, would work. So I think that's one thing. The second thing is you think about the Democrats. What are they going to do? They don't control either House of Congress. They don't control any committees. They can't have hearings. Uh, basically, all they can do is talk. So it's, it's hard to see, and given that most people most of the time don't pay any attention to what's going on, uh, mm -hmm. talk, it's hard to see, and unless they actually can capture the House in the next election, I don't see how they can build much on what, they're, what Schumer is talking about. Right. Now, if you dig deeper into that New York Times column, Mo, what you'll see, it, uh, Schumer used these, these words, quote, people who worked hard and played by the rules. That's straight from Bill Clinton's playbook Absolutely. in 1992. Mm -hmm. And then he threw in the phrase vulture capitalist, mm -hmm. which I do believe Bernie Sanders made light of, and I think was also goes back to 2012, uh, used mm -hmm. against Mitt Romney. So this suggests to me that in some respects they're trying to create a crazy quilt, if you will, of democratic policy. It's a little Clinton centrism on the one side, a little Bernie progressivism, and who knows what else goes in the middle. But, you know, can they really pull this off? I think it's going to be difficult, and I think what they have to... Basically, the path back is, is a big victory in the midterm elections and then winning back the presidency and then delivering. Uh, they didn't really deliver under Obama, I think. And um, my view is always it's less talk and it's mostly performance, that the electorate rewards you when you actually get in office and deliver for them. 
and they don't put, I think wisely enough, don't put much emphasis on talk. Right. Now let's uh, flip it over to the Republicans for a minute. Uh, Donald Trump today, in sort of typical Trump fashion of getting over his skis, talked about tax reform, and he talked about two things which I think will have Republicans rather curious. One is he talked about uh, lowering rates, but made it very clear he does not want to lower rates for wealthy people. And then secondly, he talked about taking the corporate rate even lower than what Paul Ryan wants to do. So on the one hand, he is trying to be restrained, not help the wealthy. On the other hand, he wants to bend over backwards to businesses. So, Mo, let's talk about where the Republicans are these days. Is, is there an identity for the Republican Party? They have control of Congress. They have 32 governorships, I believe. And there's a man in the White House who is a Republican, but he's not really of the Republican Party. So if you're a Republican looking at your party, what does your party stand for? I think that's true. And um, in, in a sense, I mean, in the essays, I call Trump a disorder. Uh, that, that I've, I've argued that we have two highly sorted parties in the U.S. We now have a liberal Democratic Party and a conservative Republican Party, much like the classic parties in Europe. The problem in the United States is there's only two of them. In Europe, when you have these ideologically distinct parties, you have four, five, six, and so right. voters can take their choice. And so a lot of voters just don't fit the profiles. So the the, the three-legged stool in the Republican Party worked for a while, but I think it's, it's coming apart. Uh, clearly, the wars... Have uh, have reacted against reaction to the wars. Have reacted against the neoconservative foreign policy that's been so uh, so prevalent. Uh, the younger generation just is not into the social conservative issues, uh, although I think they are receptive to economic to prudent uh, fiscal uh, policies. Right. Uh, and they understand and students understand that entitlements need to be reformed. We can't just go on forever. So I think, um, you know, I mean, I, I just don't see how they're going to navigate these tensions. It may be, uh, <laughs> it may be they're, they're sort of, in, in a sense, you look at, they're winning in the South on one set of issues. They're right. winning in social conservatism. They're winning elsewhere in other sets of issues. But then when they get into Congress, it's hard to put those together. You don't have a, people elected for, for the same reasons. So it's interesting is all I can say. I don't, have a, I don't have a good answer for you. So if you think of this as a swim meet, how many Republican lanes would there be right now? <laughs> oh, I think you just named question. about three. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it would be three. Uh, you got the sort of Grant, Rand Paul lane. Uh, and his, his father was a, even sort of a better example mm -hmm. of it, I think. Right, so it's a libertarian life. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. uh, and sort of we're, we're not going to focus much on the social issues. Let's let people live their own lives. And we're not going to go around the world uh, sort of spreading democracy at the point of a gun. Um, you know, I think definitely that one. And there's the social conservative lane, the, uh, which is just I just don't see much of a future. Um, that would be maybe the Huckabee lane. Yeah, um, and they, as you know, were not necessarily economically conservative. Um, right, but this, so, is, this is just, yeah. this is the transgender mm -hmm. issue, it's the marriage issue, it's abortion, yeah, pure that's, social that's conservatism. Right. And then there is the, uh, there are the people who don't care about much else except taxes and, right. and the economy. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so melding these groups together uh, is tough. Now, of course, the Democrats have their own problems as well. They've got to meld the the sort of centrist Bill Clinton stuff you just talked about with the, uh, the progressives who are really, really ascendant at the moment within the party base. Right, so you could probably create about three or four different wings for the Democrats You probably well. could do it, yeah. Uh -huh. Well, do you see a divorce ahead for the parties? I mean, do you see the parties breaking up in the next... I don't know, decade or two? I certainly hope so. I mean, I've been... You hope <laughs> been, so? Oh, yeah. I've been, tr I've been tr sort of uh, trumpeting this for uh, for 10 years or so. That we have a party system which was forged in the 60s mm -hmm. and 80s. 
sort of in this period here, and it's in a sense still fighting the old battles. It's in sort of like French generals getting ready to fight World War II again, and things have changed. And so I think sort of breaking it up and forging new coalitions would be better for the country. I mean, I, I suspect uh, out there there is a fiscally conservative um, sort of social live and let live and don't get too involved in the world sort of we, we can't change our, our, our ability to change the world is limited I think there is sort of a, a kind of a, a majority for that out there but whether a candidate espousing that could get through either party's primaries is sort of the question let's talk a bit about maybe in store in 2017 and 2018 I was looking at the Virginia governor's race the other day Virginia and New Jersey have um, elections this year gubernatorial mm -hmm. elections uh, New Jersey, I'm not paying much attention to because it seems that Chris Christie just, just dwarfs that election. And I think uh, mm -hmm. I saw a poll the other day, he has about a 25% job right. approval. Mm -hmm. uh, surprised it was that high, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, but in Virginia, uh, Virginia is interesting bellwether mode because Virginia has a habit in the first year of a president of reversing what the national outcome is. If a Republican's elected president, Virginia will go with the Democratic governor and vice versa. Uh, but in that race right now, it's a toss up, it's a dead heat, it's about 44 all. If you look at the Republican, Ed Gillespie, who was a creature of Washington, Ed's a former RNC chair and a Bush White House aide, he is trying to very carefully straddle a Trump line in that he is not embracing Donald Trump, he's not bashing Donald Trump, he's trying to he's trying to create his own independence, but at the same time trying to say, well, we need to have a practical relationship with this guy, you can't insult the man. Uh, you look at 2017, Mo, and then you look at 2018 coming, what, what are you seeing right now in the way of data? What, what do you think is coming down the road? I know, I know you hate the long-term prognostication. Yeah, no, the, the long-term, there's, there's a long time between now and then. The, um, it would take a, a really major upset for the Democrats to take control of the Senate, given how unfavorable the structure is to them. They're defending most of the seats. About defending a, a lot of seats in anyway. I think it's about 20, 45 out of 34, now. yeah. There, uh, many of them are in areas carried by Trump. The Democrats, in turn, are defending some seats that were carried by Trump. Right. So on the House... Um, they only need 24 seats. Mm -hmm. And given 2006, 2010, that is certainly not uh, out, of the, out of the question. It'll all depend. Um, the economic news was good again today. Um, it's it's, it's going to depend basically on, I think, performance. If the economy is humming along, we haven't run into a recession yet. If um, there's been no foreign policy disasters, I think, um, I, I sort of doubt the Russia thing is going to amount to anything. If Trump doesn't get any worse, <laughs> <laughs> in terms of his tweeting and behavior, I think the Democrats can probably uh, are going to have a tough time taking the House. But that it all just depends on uh, on conditions, I think. So we're going to have a thousand and one sideshows between now and November 2018, mm -hmm. like today's little little drama over mm -hmm. transgender policy. But what long-term issues are we do we look at for voters? Obviously, the economy, mm -hmm. presidential performance, mm -hmm. and the economy, and peace and war. Mm -hmm. Those are the big things. Their midterms tend to be a referendum on the president. Any other trends out there? I was looking at governor's numbers the other day. I noticed that uh, Scott Walker is underwater in Wisconsin. Uh, Rick Snyder, the Republican governor of Michigan, is underwater. Uh, governor Scott of Florida, on the other hand, is above water. He's running for the Senate in 2018. So do you see any patterns in the way of, uh, the way of politics right now? Well, people tend to, the longer they're in office, they tend to build up opposition right. to them. And it's also, as the case, it's one thing if you're approved, disapproved. The other thing is if you have a candidate running against you. Uh, you may not particularly approve of Scott Walker, but if it's going to be that other guy, then you'll vote for Scott Walker. So um, you have to have to remember that. 
Um, no, I think we're just in a really uncertain period right now. I just don't, I don't know how the dust is going to settle. Uh, it's a really interesting period to be a political scientist. Right. Uh, so we're now going to give the our listeners a free Stanford education, and this is Professor Fiorina's chance to tell them where to get information. Where would you send voters? Voters are hungry for information, not just poll numbers, but also mm -hmm. just data on what's going on in the country. And maybe they don't want to get caught up in the daily arguments. They actually want to find hard evidence of how voters feel about things. Where would you turn them to? Boy, I, I, I go to so many sites during the day, and they're all mixed. I mean, you well, can, let's talk about that. Let's yeah, I mean, walk us through your day. Okay, well, you I, I, I tune in to Real Clear Politics every day. Mm -hmm. And half the stuff is just more Russia this, more sessions that, and you just ignore it. Right. Uh, but there are some interesting uh, analytical articles. They also have real clear history, real clear policy, uh, where you can learn some stuff. And it's nice in the sense they try to balance. They try to have somebody on one side of the issue and somebody else on the other side of the issue. Um, otherwise, I mean, I read widely. Uh, I. I don't read as much on policy details because that's not what I do. I'm an elections and public opinion uh, type of person. So I, w I would have to, you'd have to talk to somebody like Dan Kessler or somebody to find out where do you go for healthcare information and where right. do you go, somebody else for Condi, where do you go for foreign policy information. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it's just sort of, and I often, one thing leads to another. I end up like six sites away from where I started just because of following links from various places. And if you want to do a data dive, you would go to our colleague Doug Rivers' YouGov site? Uh, not really. I mean, no. the, the, um, the, the, the data set I have is actually not public. Okay. <laughs> you know, yes, you could go to his site. You wouldn't be able necessarily to get the stuff. But there is a great, um, the American National Election Studies, which is a public database because mm -hmm. it's funded by the National Science Foundation. Uh, you can go to that and get a wealth of information. It's, I described it as a 60-year history of, the Amer of American politics which is not uh, filtered through the lenses of professors or journalists, but it's how voters actually thought at the time. And there's some real surprises in there when you go look at it. The sociologists have a thing called the General Social Survey, also a public database at the University of Chicago. And you can just comb through these and just learn enormous amount about how Amer what Americans think, how they've changed over the course of 40, 50 years. Mm -hmm. And these are sort of the, the workhorses. And then beyond that, there are things like the Roper Center, the Gallup. Gallup's pretty good. I mean, they're, a lot of these places are making their data more available now uh, than they used to. If anything, we're sort of almost inundated in data. This is almost more than you can handle now. Mm -hmm. We would encourage voters to read all 12 of your essays on the 2016 election. Um, I, I would hope so. Uh, I tried to make them accessible. They're not written for political scientists. Uh, there are no fancy statistics. It's all graphs and tables. And uh, I try to write in a style that is sort of with minimal jargon. Uh, and uh, I think most people, they're also short. <laughs> most of these essays are 15 to 20 pages. Right. And so you can digest them in a, in a fairly, at one sitting, one essay, one in one sitting. I've had actually a lot of feedback from friends who are not professionals. Who I posted these on Facebook. And so I've, I've, uh, each one as it's done, I post on Facebook. And so I've had a lot of feedback. And I think I'm reaching the audience I wanted to reach. That's good. In terms of your past writings about partisanship and the, the myth of a partisan divided America, which of your books would you would you refer people to? Well, I would say um, the current one coming out because the Culture War book was written in 2004 originally, and although revised twice, um, I've just had a lot more thoughts, and it, it sort of, you know, essentially that was still written when we were expecting Hillary Clinton and, um, say, George Allen 
be the candidates for president in 2008. And obviously, there's been a lot of water under the bridge. Uh, George Allen, there's that. a name from the past. <laughs> there is a name from the past, yeah. Uh -huh. Okay, very good. So final question, looking to 2020. Yes, a long ways away, but you can already see how the media are going to handle the 2020 election. Trump drives the media crazy, and Trump is good for media ratings. So they're going to cover Trump the way they decide to. But what about your industry? What about political scientists? What role do you see political scientists playing in 2020? Uh, I don't think any different a role than we play normally, which is most of us are not political in the sense of partisan or involved in campaigns. We're not activists. Uh, that we, we, t we want to get it right. I mean, in the sense, you know, people are always saying that judges decide and base their own personal preference, and the lawyers say no because your audience is other judges. And if you write a crappy opinion, they're going to call you on it. And I think most of us are analysts first. And if we, if we say something in an op-ed or something that is just not in tuned with the data, you're going to get called on it. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I think, our professional incentives. And so I think we'll be doing the same thing, trying to analyze uh, what's happened. Now, it's, this time we're just behind the, uh, behind the eight ball. Just things happen too fast uh, for us to catch up. And uh, hopefully we'll have had some time to digest this, but maybe not. Maybe Trump is just this perpetual motion machine that will keep things right. uh, stirred up. But not looking at the electorate in a different way or looking at voting patterns in a different way. In other words, you, you approach mm -hmm. 2020 pretty much the same way you approach 2016. Yes, yes I think so. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, for you, thanks for coming in today. And the essays are really terrific. I cannot encourage listeners enough to go to hoover.org and look them up. They really, really are terrific. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows, most certainly including Mo Fiorina, straight to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. I've mentioned several times now that Mo's written an essays on a series of essays on the 2016 presidential election. Again, you can find them on Hoover's website. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care, and thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.